0: For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash Thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash Thrive.
2: Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. Our guest today is Polly Lieberman. She is co-founder at Trice. We're gonna talk about cannabis, we're gonna talk about web, we're gonna talk about the intersection of these, really how the cannabis industry is evolving, how brands are evolving, how people are connecting with cannabis brands, how cannabis brands are connecting with their markets. Interesting kind of aspect of the cannabis industry, obviously I think most people listening to the program know the kind of the challenges that brands have with communication and using kind of traditional platforms and. Some of the limits that you run into given kind of the status of cannabis and the innovation that has happened really across the board in the cannabis industry to find new ways, innovative ways to connect with audiences, establish relationships, build brands. So we're going to talk about that and the work that they're doing and kind of the insights they're having around the cannabis industry. So with that, Polly, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me, Bruce.
2: Yeah, it's a pleasure. Before we dive to everything that you're doing today, let's get a little background. How did you get into brands and brand building and audiences and cannabis? Give us a little of the backstory.
3: Sure. So my background is in nascent markets, and I have spent the majority of my career working for hyper growth startups and early stage startups within the technology space. And my co-founder has done the same. And started working in cannabis about five years ago, really looking for what the next nascent market was, and identified cannabis as a real interesting opportunity. At that point in time, the story that I always like to tell is, you know, this was early, early days when people looked at me. I mean, it's, it we're still early days, to be clear, in, in cannabis, but early, early days when I would go to these networking events in New York, when legalization wasn't really even on the table and or or adult use legalization, and I would go to some networking events to educate myself really to test the waters and see what was going on in this industry. And basically, what I saw is a room full of on one side, what would Typically be classified as stoners. And then also some people, some people who really had been displaced because of cannabis for medical purposes, but for the most part, stoners. And on the right side of the room was, you know, the opportunistic set, the suits, so to speak. And here I was sitting in the middle, looking around, saying, Where are my people? And what I quickly uncovered was that the cannabis industry was really fundamentally an ag industry and the majority of people that were working in that industry didn't really have a lot of, or there was this white space in terms of people who had deep experience building early stage businesses, growing businesses. And that was an opportunity that I started to explore when I left my job in advertising and marketing technology and started consulting in the cannabis industry when people were looking at me saying, you're crazy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious. Anytime I I see someone who has deep experience in another industry coming into a cannabis, you know, what were you able to kind of directly apply? What didn't apply so well? What couldn't you apply at all? Like where were the, where did the transition, the translation work and where did it not work between kind of ad tech background and, and cannabis industry?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. Well, so the majority of my career was actually spent in the mobile industry and mobile was such a nascent market. When I started working in it, it was at a time before iPhones, when people were buying things on on what was considered on deck, right? (coughs) Through like your carrier And if you were on Verizon and I was on T-Mobile, believe it or not, we weren't even able to text each other because there were massive interoperability issues. And those sort of rule-writing days where we established what the standards were, we evangelized really what the opportunity was, I don't think at that point in time anyone really had a clear sense that the mobile device would be one of two things that we left our homes with it used to be three your keys, your phone, and your wallet, but now you don't even need your wallet anymore because your wallet yep. is on your phone. So, you know, we spent a lot of time writing the standards, evangelizing what the opportunity was, and really setting the stage for what has become a super meaningful industry that has infiltrated pretty much every part of our lives. At that point in time, obviously facilitated by technology, at that point in time, you know, mobile had really matured to a place where, or actually when I transitioned into cannabis, mobile had matured to a place where it was really just a large industry where all the big players were invested and developing their strategies and really understanding how to connect with consumers using, you know, the mobile device and what that means as Something that's integrated in your day-to-day life. And and that was really, really interesting. There wasn't, there was no longer that evangelism that was required to take place, but in terms of like at the beginning of any nascent market, it's about what's the technology, but then it really yeah. turns into what's the value? What's the value to yeah. brands? What's the value to customers? What's the value just in general? And when I entered cannabis, technology was really, and to the to a certain extent. To this day, really hasn't been playing as significant of a role in the market in the industry as it has been, particularly for brands that all changed dramatically during the early days of the pandemic. And I guess that we're still in the late days of the pandemic, yeah. or we'd like to think that it's over. Yeah. But, <laughs> we're, but we're acting like it's over, but it's still kind. Of, we're still kind of here. But yeah. so so. Sort of in the early days, when I first got into the industry, I was thinking, how can I take my core skills really of understanding that value exchange between two parties and thinking about what type of technology solutions could then be adapted to be utilized by the majority of the work that I've done professionally has been working with Fortune 100 brands helping them understand emerging technologies and how they could use that to connect more effectively with customers. So I was looking for what that kind of solution was gonna be in cannabis. And pre-pandemic, the majority of brands that were marketing were doing it really two ways. One is through bud tender marketing and bud tender education. And this varies, of course, by state to state but it's still a core part of everything, which kind of includes patient appreciation days or on-site dispensary events or on-site, you know, dispensary activation, sort of the world that I came from, what would be called shopper marketing. Yep. And then the second part is really, I suppose, you know, events, all types of events, event marketing to get in front of Customers, So, you know, the big difference in the cannabis industry that I noticed very, very early on, and it was sort of obvious but somewhat unexpected, was how much work needed to be done on the advocacy side, on the rule setting side, just in terms of educating regulators, educating brands, not so differently, and educating everyone in the ecosystem, not so differently from what we did in the early days of mobile, whether it was text message platforms or rich media advertising or cross device identity solutions. There was a lot of evangelism that was required there. So what I would say is those, I don't think too many brands were really thinking about how to use digital in a meaningful way pre pandemic. And that changed everything. I mean, obviously changed everything for everyone, but during the pandemic, one cannabis we all know was deemed essential. And, you know, we like to talk about it as a recession proof business, despite the state of the cannabis stocks. Yep. <laughs> and secondarily is how do you now reach customers in a way that is completely different and not in your existing toolkit because of the state of the state, which, which was a, you know, a challenge that many, pretty much all companies needed to needed to think about in the pandemic when people were at home and spending time on their computers and so forth. But specifically in cannabis, because a lot of those, a lot of the majority of companies really weren't thinking about things that way.
0: Yeah.
2: We're going to take a quick break to hear some words from our sponsors. And now back to our program. I'm curious how much of this was having to build the brand versus having to communicate the brand. Cause I I find that, you know, we're kind of in this confluence of, of both, you know, the cannabis industry is evolving and the whole concept of a brand is evolving. I mean, I, I think five years ago it was basically how much, THC did you have in your in <laughs> your flower what's the only the only real kind of differentiating factor you know now that you actually have these brands kind of developing but you also have this kind of weird market situation and then you've got to figure out how to communicate using you know various platforms and technologies i mean it, it feels like there's multiple challenges the cannabis companies have right now like how how do you kind of parse out the work to be done for cannabis companies to effectively actually build a brand and then communicate that brand
3: yeah it's a very good question i mean i think that It ultimately, it's a really interesting time because I think that the change that I've seen in cannabis brands specifically is they went from thinking about how do you build the the big challenge that exists, which is, I I mean, I guess fundamentally keeping the lights on, but let's just say that's been addressed, which it, it certainly hasn't for many brands. But the big challenge is how do you build a national brand, right? based on the fragmented state of legalization. You know, everyone talks about the example of if Coke had to create a manufacturing, production, retail, distribution, marketing arm in every single state, would they actually have the position that they have today as the go-to beverage? And I think that that's the big challenge that cannabis brands have. Obviously, the well-funded ones can think more strategically. I think before the legalization landscape started to change, post the farm bill and pre kind of like the East Coast, really catching some legalization fire, I suppose, people were really thinking about building a national brand primarily through launching a CBD line, which has a whole series of challenges in and of itself that you know, I'm happy to get into, but, you know, it's a very hard thing to do for sure, because it requires a tremendous amount of marketing capital, because there's a bit more flexibility in marketing CBD. I think that what has happened now is that some of the bigger brands and the ones that probably will survive are not thinking about that, but they're thinking about multi-state expansion. So how do I build a brand by actually, extending my presence in states and everyone's doing it a little bit differently. But that is ultimately, I think, really what cannabis brands are fundamentally challenged with right now. And I don't think that anyone who is responsible for deploying capital is actually giving out capital to anyone who doesn't have a multi-state expansion strategy at the moment.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And they it just it need to be prepared. And is that because we need to be prepared for federal legalization? And if you don't have some kind of national presence, like you're just going to get clobbered when, when things actually go at a, a national market?
3: I think, I mean, I think that that's such a hard thing to say yes to, but certainly that is one of the factors. I think it has more to do with the fact that every single state, the dynamics in the states change so much based on sort of the actual maturation of the legalization. And depending on sort of what year you're in, everyone was super bullish on the Michigan market early on, rightfully so. And there's been a lot of success there, but there's insane price compression. And it's hard to build a moat around your brand. When the dynamics are, basically, when the dynamics are ever changing. I mean, dog years, I don't know what's more than dog years, but the cannabis industry lives in like moment to moment where things change so rapidly. And the price of flour and the marketing regulations and basically the tax rates and the changes in distribution and delivery, all of the prongs that exist in developing an ironclad strategy. Basically, have to be re- reevaluated almost on. I would like to say on a quarterly basis, but it's almost on a monthly basis based how things based how quickly things change in a market. And you know, from quarter to quarter or month to month, you could have uh, supply chain problems where you can't get your product in market one day, and the next day, or the next day, you have challenges that are specific to distribution. So. I've heard so many customers thinking about things from the customer perspective and certainly have experienced this myself, where you go into a dispensary for your favorite product and it's just not there. And that is, I think, just one of many examples of how challenging it is to scale a cannabis industry. And I think that you're you're spreading out the risk by extending into multiple markets in addition to starting to create that national footprint that is going to be necessary at some point. I mean, I always am a little bit, I'm always a little bit thoughtful about that answer because I do think that a lot of the cannabis industry does pull from some of the pages of the playbook of, you know, the craft brew industry And the craft brew industry has really been, many of these brands have been incredibly successful in, you know, hyper-focused in regionalized markets. And, you know, we're not seeing that so much in the cannabis industry because these craft brew organizations are building off of the backbone of years and years and years of regulation so they don't have to necessarily look at how dynamic all of the regulations are and what that yeah. means for a business. Yeah,
2: I'm also curious uh, since you're bringing up the the craft brew side. I mean, how, one of the things I find that that's difficult to to compare with, you know, spirits and alcohol is the whole. I mean, you have the whole kind of retail bar scene, right? Where the, you. That there's that a social, a very established social component of it that drives a lot of the use patterns about the, how people connect with the brands and, you know, with, with cannabis, you know, we're just starting to see some lounge, you know, use lounge kind of formats kind of coming coming into play. But just because it's, it's you know, you're basically buying it and consuming it uh, yourself, you're not there'sn't the social component of it. How do you see that? I guess, do you see that affecting how the brands get built or or the strategies that people are using or just how the dynamics of the brand work?
3: I I mean, I think that you're playing right into sort of the sweet spot of how Thrice thinks about things. So, you know, you have, there is an inherent social component to cannabis for a type of cannabis user without question. And the majority of the market still is dominated by sort of flower and flower derivatives, whether it's pre-roll vape or, or actual, you know, whole, whole flour. So that still is the majority of, I think over 80% in most States of where sales are happening. If I think it's hard for people to envision this, but think about the world five to 10 years out where your craft brew is replaced by a cannabis beverage which will certainly change how brands think about how they market, but we're not quite there yet. But I do think that that form factor is really interesting. I just don't know what it looks like, you know, and I, I wish I did, you know, five to 10 years down the road, but I do think that there's a very different experience for consumers when you go to, a consumption lounge and all there is, is smoking, right? Which happens to be a social element to it. It's not, is it that much fun to take an edible with your friends? I mean, you certainly don't need to go to a consumption lounge to do that. But if you go to say a curated infused dinner where there's non-alcoholic infused wine and a pairing event and some infused, infused actual appetizers and a whole, you know, multi-course dinner, That's a very different experience, and I think when we get to that point, that becomes really interesting, both from an experience perspective, but also from sort of the type of consumers that would then be attracted to that type of experience versus going to a smoking lounge and smoking out of a shared pipe or passing a joint or whatever it is that for the most part takes place in the few consumption lounges that exist in the United States today.
2: So what are some of the kind of strategies or technologies that brands, you know, can use or, or should be considering using or, or leveraging in some way to really, you know, develop their market and their segments and connecting with their customers and consumers? Like, where, where are we in terms of having kind of tools at our disposal or, or the things that we can use, you know, effectively and reliably at this point, given regulations?
3: I think the key word there is reliably, you know, if you... If you <laughs> I don't know if there's really anything that could be used reliably because everyone is at the mercy of whoever, you know, makes the rules and decides one day that you're going to get flagged or your account's going to get shut down or you're no longer going to be able to spend money. I think that there are certainly some sophisticated marketers that are really starting to think about the cannabis industry as... The next CPG industry and looking at tried and true tactics of what that looks like, sort of the model of how consumer packaged goods companies market is really the winning formula, the winning strategy for success. I think the key right now is testing a lot of different things and looking at what kinds of results you're getting A lot of cannabis brands are using Instagram and Instagram influencers. Certainly there's some safe digital advertising that exists. There's still a lot of events integrations. We're all happy that there are events that are taking place now again and integrating into events and actually having cannabis specific events is still a tried and true practice. Budtender marketing and I think Budtender education and a lot of the tools that exist specifically for educating the bud tenders. And really, I think that shopper marketing is really a tremendous opportunity. Kind of what's available today, I would say. I think what we're looking at is really extending that out into not necessarily emerging technologies, but new ways to connect with consumers. There's certainly a lot of podcasting that goes on, thanks to you and many other great hosts. So that's definitely a way, but you know, there's like in everything today, we're living in an attention economy and there's so much fragmentation. It's really challenging to reach consumers. I mean, I remember I was working with a client when the Massachusetts market opened up and Massachusetts, we couldn't find any way to launch this brand and to really raise awareness. And we ended up flying a plane over the beach, right? Which is, you know, that's old school, but it's effective. You're sitting there on the beach, you have captive audience, you have their attention, or at least the ones who aren't napping or swimming. So, you know, that's that's pretty effective. But I think that really a lot of the traditional ways people are dipping their toe into the water when available, outdoor, out-of-home advertising is certainly, I mean, that's an example of -of out-of-home advertising, is certainly coming into the fore as well and always been available. It's very specific, specific, like everything on a state-by-state basis. The way that we're thinking about things, specifically at Thrice, is what is the opportunity in terms of like the way that consumers are engaging with some of the technologies specifically with web three. So we think that there's a massive opportunity, not only within Twitter and Twitter spaces where the cannabis brands haven't really committed the majority of them to Twitter in the way that they have to Instagram, which to a certain extent makes sense because brands are visual and they want to tell a visual story. And advertising is very much about presenting that brand and that brand imagery. But I still think fundamentally, the majority of brands are still doing heavy lifting on the education front. And there's a really big opportunity within Twitter and within Twitter spaces I think Clubhouse had a moment during the pandemic and Twitter spaces yep. has filled in a lot of that space right now. And we believe that there's a really big opportunity to go into sort of the audio space within Twitter. And then even though there are ver- there's a very limited audience in the metaverse, there's massive predictions in terms of the way that if you talk about a visual space and immersive experience, the metaverse is super cool for many reasons, not just for shopping, but for education and for interaction and to be able to bring that visualization, even a dispensary experience to life. And... Once more consumers begin to adopt the metaverse as a place to go, not necessarily as a replacement for everything, but as a supplement, then I think that there's going to be tremendous opportunity in the metaverse as well for brands, both from the models are still similar, where there's billboards and branding in the metaverse in the same way that you would see it in a store, and there's advertising and there's but I think that some of that at some of that. In-person dispensary experience could be created in the metaverse, and there's a lot of people, an enormous group of people, who still are not comfortable about going into a dispensary. They find it to be incredibly intimidating.
2: Yeah, do you see? I'm curious how much you see these uh, kind of storeless delivery service things kind of taking hold on this. You know, people that or companies that are no longer kind of a bypassing the whole, you have to go to the dispensary, you you just get online, you have, you order what you want, it shows up at your door. I mean, do you see, I guess, do you see that trend happening? And if so, I'm going to be reaching here a little bit. Do you see the idea of a metaverse potentially being like a factor in that or or mitigating that to some level or playing a part in that?
3: I think absolutely. I think that there's so many different types of cannabis consumers. And the reason why people go into a dispensary is because one, people like going into stores. But I think a big part of it has to do with if you've never been to a dispensary, if you've never tried cannabis, then you need that education, which is the importance of actually speaking to a sales associate. I also call the bud tender about the different products, what you're looking for, what you might want to try, making some recommendations. And that is the power of Sort of the role of the bud tender, which is dramatically different from state to state, which is what I've experienced. So I do think that consumers, it depends on where you are in your cannabis purchasing life cycle. If you know the brands that you want, and you're really just kind of looking to refill your supply, then I think that that order online pickup in store or order online you know have it delivered to your door is it's only going to increase in terms of the way in which consumers are making their purchasing it's still really hard it's yeah. it's hard not for a consumer to do that but it, there's still so many points of friction that exist in the cannabis purchasing process having to do with payment methods you know having to be cash only and or you know use some type of workaround to cash in some instances, a debit card. And then on the delivery side, and I'm not even going to get into what that means for how delivery drivers maintain a level of compliance, right? Yeah. And ensuring that that process is turnkey. We're just not there. We're just not there as an industry. And I think you can think back to, you know, a company like Drizzly that now has Lantern, or, or a spinoff is Lantern, yeah. their delivery service, a really interesting company they solved for delivery of alcohol at scale, you know that was compliant, but it took a really long time to get there and I think that we're gonna see that same type of thing. I think the key, maybe the key thing, the theme of this, of this chat, Bruce, is it's gonna take a really long time. Everything in cannabis takes a really long time. But I do think when can when, when consumers are becoming more familiar with product and product assortments and understanding what works for them, then that will be what they want, that convenience factor plays into how people make purchases today. I don't think that the cannabis industry, once it's really up and running in full swing, is all that different.
2: Yeah, it's, it's just interesting to see there's so many factors and depending on which one falls in which direction really kind of shapes the industry. What are the things, kind of big picture things that you're looking for, you're kind of watching over the next 12, 24 months in terms of that are really going to impact the shape
3: of the cannabis industry going forward? Yes, a great question. Well, I mean, I think that the one thing that you always have to think about is the state of legalization and the regulatory environment. I do think that the Safe Banking Act will pass. And if we were having this chat a year from now, safe banking would have passed. Okay. Um, there'll probably some be some sort of change in yeah. D.C. in the fall, and the Republicans will likely own this issue and claim to be the heroes. That's my prediction. So that will really change things because even though you can bank in cannabis, it's very challenging. So... If the cannabis industry has access to capital in the way that other industries do, if, if they can write off sort of business expenses and we get rid of 280E in the way that other industries can write off expenses, then it opens up not only the way that cannabis industries can actually develop their go-to-market strategies, their marketing strategies, spend their capital but also scale into new states. And I think that marketing has always been the, the way that in which can, the average the typical cannabis company has let spends less than fifty thousand dollars on marketing. And a part of that is because they can't write off those expenses. So yeah, exactly. if they can, then you know, the world is their oyster. Not all that dissimilar from when you know pharmaceutical companies could start advertising directly to consumers. That really changed the face of the industry. No longer were we a hundred percent reliant on doctors, but all of a sudden we were educated about what the best drugs were for us based on what we saw during the Super Bowl.
2: Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, it seems like those are going to have some pretty major, um, kind of major impacts to. To how things play out.
3: For sure. And then I think secondarily, and well, you know, like any new state, it's going to take some time, but secondarily would be this pocket of Northeastern states, which have won a lot of money and a lot of existing cannabis consumers and a lot of interest and a lot of appeal for cannabis brands of New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania is likely, you know, going to happen pretty quickly then you really have this massive group of consumers that are going to be at least considering entering the market. Mm-hmm. And I think that that will play a huge role in how this cannabis industry begins to unfold, especially because of the capital markets in New York and how they're thinking about funding you know, these markets as well.
2: Polly, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about Thrice, what's the best way to get that information?
3: So you can reach me at polly at thrice. That's T H R I C three dot I O. And our website is the same thing, T H R I C three dot And you can follow us on Twitter at thriceofficial. And thank you so much. This has been awesome. And if you get me back on in a year, we can kind of do a crystal ball validation. <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly. We'll see We we'll see how well we predict it. This has been great. I'll make sure all the links and handles and everything on the show notes so people can get that. And thank you so much for taking the time today.
3: Awesome. Thanks. Have a great day.
2: That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time.
1: You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter.